What do you got in there? Oh, is it just all drawing uh, utensils? Oh, uh, yeah. So I just, I was just suddenly thinking to myself, you know, I, I feel like I need something to do with my hands. I'm going to just start drawing something if, while we're talking. If you want to draw, that'd be fine. Do you need paper? No, I got paper. So. All right, excellent. It's only office paper, but it's acid-free office paper. Whatever so. it takes, man. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I like it. Oh, you know, we could, we have started recording, and our, our voices are loud enough and okay. stuff. So, so, yeah, I will be drawing something while we're doing this, and if uh, John is nice, I will give him the drawing, and maybe he can show it to you afterward. I, it could be the lobby card for this very uh, program because uh, it's uh, you know I'm going to spin this and probably release it tomorrow. So uh, okay. yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, and in fact, I might even incorporate you at the at the beginning of the show. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, an interesting show. As I just said, it's Easter Sunday, or it's the day after Easter Sunday, and uh, I'm, I'm, it's been a bit more than a week since my last show. I uh, had Janelle Aslan on uh, ah. the last show, uh, Gene, and, uh, you know, it was right before Emerald City. So I wanted to get that on before, you know, she was going to do her panels out there. But uh, today uh, we're talking about C2E2 because uh, there's going to be a great spotlight panel on Gene Ha. And Gene was telling me about it. And he's like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to, t- you know, I'm not sure <laughs> if I can lead a panel. And I'm like, hey, man, I'll moderate it. And he's like, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> John is giving me too much credit here. What actually happened is he said, so have you figured out how are you going to do this? Who's going to lead the panel? And I said, I need someone to lead the panel. I need to do more. What? Did I really uh, say that? I don't yeah, yeah. That. You had to actually tell me, <laughs> ask all these questions like, do you know how to do this stuff? And I said, I didn't even know I had to ask to do that stuff. And you were like, okay, I'm going to help you out here because I'm your friend and you are lost. I don't think I said it that <laughs> you way. You didn't say it that way, but, but that's, that, it was it was subtext. But well, it was kind of like I will take you by the hand and lead you to safety. Well, man. if you want to, yeah. I mean, if you just want to sit and answer questions, you know. But I mean, I do know, and I have seen borne witness to many a panel where the creator does just kind of sit up there and like, hey, ask me whatever you want. But uh, Gene has announcements that he'll be making at the panel. We're not going to get into that now because it's a surprise. But. Uh, uh, we, I will say I think we can say what's on the uh, listing for uh, the C two E two website uh, events listing, and it's a uh, I have an announcement of a big new project, and everyone who shows up at that panel on Friday at I think it's twelve thirty now, it's been changed. Um, okay, yeah, everyone will get a free preview comic. It's twelve pages long, including the covers, and you will be the first people in the world to find out about this who aren't. Um, essentially really, really close friends of mine are working on it. So. Excellent, man. Well, there you go. And, you know, it's a, a good opportunity to see proof of concept, and hopefully you will like it and, and want to pursue it when, when uh, said project is uh, up and running. Yeah, so... Very yeah, cool. I'm very excited to get all this out to the world. That's excellent. You know, uh, Gene, uh, today's episode of Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. I don't know if you know about them. No, that's thousands, awesome. Thousands strong, absolutely. People who support this very podcast uh, with uh, contributions uh, via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Word Balloon, okay. have you heard I of know, Patreon? I have heard of Patreon, yes. It's uh, it's going pretty well, i got to say, and I appreciate uh, the support that the listeners have been doing. And all I ask for is if you can spare a dollar a month. That would be great. If you like Word Balloon and, you know, the kind of programming that you get from Word Balloon week after week, creators like Gene come on, spill their guts to me, spill their guts to us, and uh, we get to hear about uh, process and what's going on in the comic book industry from their point of view. So uh, if you want to help the cause and help me get to conventions and make the connections of some of the out-of-town uh, creators and stuff, uh, patreon.com slash Word Balloon, or you can go to wordballoon.com, and there's a tab and a video there that kind of explains why I'm asking for money. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you want to help the cause out and you can afford a dollar a month, you can do patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, a fine Indiana company. Uh, they are uh, based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, I know you're uh, formerly uh, from South Bend. Yeah. South Bend is not 
I, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's true. South Bend is not nearly as glamorous as Fort Wayne. Is that true? Not, yeah, it's South really with ben, Notre Dame and any, everything. I would think it would be uh, kind of you know. Uh, it, South Bend and Indianapolis, all in the early 20th century, almost became the center of car manufacturing in the United States. Um, but uh, Detroit, frankly, was just friendlier to the uh, southern, the black southern immigrants uh, up to the north. So oh, they had the labor force; they did better, and uh, we kind of fell by the wayside. And then when uh, uh, the last uh, manufacturer. Uh, Oh, people from South Bend are just going to be like so angry at me because I'm so bad with names. And uh, the name of the manufacturer who did the Avanti, uh, Fiat? No, 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 no. It was an American. It was an American uh, South Bend manufacturer of cars. Anyway, they left in like uh, like sixty seven, sixty nine, or something like that. Okay. And just before I was born, and the Man, town fell the apart. Oh. Yeah, the last big car manufacturer. Left wow. Now. Yeah. Because um, you know when I covered boxing, I'm trying to think of. Uh, I don't, no, I didn't go to South Bend. I went to Berrien Springs, Michigan, which is near uh, South Bend, Indiana, I believe. Oh yeah, just, yeah, kind of due north, due north. Yeah, yeah, um, because uh, there was a fight. There was a or no, the, it was in South Bend. I take that back. Uh, Muhammad Ali lived. It lives in Berrien Springs, Michigan. He was coming from there, and it was it was a fight in South Bend. Now that I think about it, and it was a Harold Brazier fight, junior welterweight, uh, top world contender, and uh, it was on ESPN. And the promoter's like, you know, Ali is coming. I'm like, yeah, right. And the Beatles are getting back together. He's like, no, I swear to God, Muhammad Ali is really coming. And he goes, if you want, he goes, I'll put in a word for you. He was, he was very kind that he, you know, took my like ribbing. It was like, no, asshole, I'm trying to give you a break here. If you want to interview <laughs> Ali, he's coming. And I got to interview Muhammad Ali. It was terrific. Oh, this man. was 1991, oh, and wow. he was he had uh, the Parkinson's syndrome, but he could speak. Yeah, and uh, he would he would he would talk like this. I I think George Foreman is still a very effective fighter, and that's how he talked to me. But he was it was before George Foreman and Evander Holyfield had their big heavyweight fight. Wow! And so I had the perspective of a man who had fought George Foreman, and I wanted to know what he thought of the comeback and and what he remembered from the seventies. And it was great. And he's like, "Oh, George is a smarter fighter now." He's like, "George rests now. George didn't rest. That's how I beat him. He, he wouldn't take it easy. He every every punch he was swinging for the fences." And he would tell me this stuff, and I'm like, "Okay." And the whole time, I'm like, "My God, I'm talking to Muhammad Ali. This is great." <laughs> it's about twenty. About 24 years ago. Yeah. So oh, I was yeah. like 26 okay. at the time. It was oh. great. Couldn't have been nicer. Oh, I, I adore Muhammad Ali. I, you know, oh, okay, yeah. so I was born in 69. And when I was growing up, he was just like the most adorable guy you could see on television. Just, you know, yeah, just, again, I'm just uh, totally forgetting all of my names, like the most famous sports broadcasters of the 70s. Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell. Yeah, just trading barbs with Howard oh, Cosell. Yeah. Just hilarious. And, th- you know, then I found out later about like, you know, in the '60s, he would drive in front of uh, some guy's house who he was trying to steal the you know the belt from, and just get out a bullhorn and start yelling at his oh, house, yeah. and just like, wow, he was kind of a jerk back then. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a great documentary uh, about the first Ali Frazier fight and leading up to it, and uh, Ali for a time because he wouldn't go in the in the draft during Vietnam, they took away his boxing license, and there really was this whole campaign to get him uh he he was a conscientious objector and ultimately the supreme court did agree and that's how he got his license back uh joe frazier was the heavyweight champion at the time wanted to fight ali and truly did help him and would go to the boxing commissions and go look this man you know you got to give the guy's license back and argued the conscientious objector argument and stuff and meanwhile ali was running around as you said about when he was trying to get the title from sonny liston he was calling Joe Frazier a gorilla and just stupid and everything. And it's, you know, I had a great uh, talk on the score, the sports, the local sports talk station about it when ESPN ran a documentary about it. 
and very staunch Ali fans that were like, hey, man, you know, Ali, you know, Ali could do no wrong. And it's like, come on, you got to admit it was pretty lousy for one black guy to call another black guy an Uncle Tom and a gorilla. I'm like, and really got nasty about it. I'm like, come on. And meanwhile, all Joe Frazier's trying to do, granted, it was a financial stake, but Frazier didn't have to help him. No. And, I, and yeah, I'm like, come on, this is a little lousy. And they're like, all right, fine. I'm like, yeah, man, come on. I, I love Ali, and I love yeah. Joe Frazier. But, yeah, that was – yeah, so that, that side of Ali, although that's what got him the attention. Yeah. And he could back it up. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, with Sonny Liston, Sonny Liston was a leg breaker for the mob and stuff. I mean, he was, you know, you know not the nicest guy in the world. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and he was a bully. He was very much like a giant Mike Tyson in a lot of ways. And, you know, Ali was able to say, I'm not, I'm not scared of this guy. Because, I mean, everyone yeah. else, much like Tyson, when you'd fight Sonny Liston, you were you already lost half the fight before the first bell rang because you were so scared of him and everything. So Gene's getting an education as he's talking to me. Yeah, I actually didn't know all the stuff about Sonny Liston and stuff. I just knew him as the guy who got beat, you know, beaten up by Muhammad Ali. So. There's, a, there's a wonderful writer named Nick Chachis who's done some amazing bi- biographies over the years. And he did a great one about Dean Martin called Dino. But he also did one about Sonny Liston, and they're both excellent. And he married Nora Ephraim. Oh, wow. The fine uh, writer, director. Yeah. Yes. So, yes, Nick T- Nick Tatch's uh, Sunny Liston book, folks. There's a recommended reading. Something, unfortunately, that InStockTrades.com does not carry because it's not <laughs> comic book related. But if you go to InStockTrades.com, you guys know by now, uh, this is the place to go where you can get trade paperbacks, hardcovers, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and essentials, all for uh, 50% off, uh, sometimes more, the standard retail price. If your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping. They make it easy. They've got great books on sale. I'm going to look at a few right now as I uh, lean over to the... the uh, Laptop, hold on a second. Yeah. We got the Avengers Omnibus uh, by uh, Kurt Busick and George Perez. Um, it's uh, 42% off. Is that $72.50 at InStockTrades.com, Gene? Let's see, how, oh. let's see what kind of Gene Maha product they've got at InStockTrades. <laughs> okay, I'm very curious about let's this. Let's find out. This is good. I like this. Sometimes they need back issues, like uh, I want to sell them at a convention or something like that. And, you know, I'll spruce them up with a sketch or something. This is true. But... If I can get them at a good price, then I can sell them at conventions and people get it. Okay, good. This is going to be something I know we're going to talk about at the panel, and we might talk a little bit about it today. But uh, top 10, for example, the uh, 49ers uh, softcover version is 42% off. It's just $10.43, Gene. Okay. And as long as I put a sketch in the cover and sell it at full price, then I can make a profit at conventions. And hey, I have something to actually. Okay, I need to write. I need to. I need to write this down. You write the- on a separate, not not on your sketch. So you know, they're friends. So if you if you need product, we could talk to Christina and uh, and Cameron over at InStock Trades and, and and set you up if we need to. Uh, America's best comics trade paperback, uh, which I would imagine features some uh, top ten uh, material that uh, Gene Ha and uh, Xander Cannon did with Alan Moore. Um, that's also 42% off, $10.41. Gene Simmons' Domina- Dominatrix uh, trade paperback, volume one. Did <laughs> I you didn't do, do anything with that? Oh, no. You know why? Because it's Gene and, yeah. uh, Gene and Ha. That's why. Here we go. Global frequency, Gene. Ah, okay. There you go. You and Warren Ellis. And then a lot Cold of vision. other artists as well. Yes. Simon Bisley, Lee Bermejo, Tommy Coker. Jason Pearson, Chris Sprouse, Carl oh. Story, Brian Wood cover. And that was the issue where um, I needed a, uh, I needed to draw a stairwell from a skyscraper, and therefore I tried to get into this building. This very building, this the very building. building. Yes. So I could take reference photos of the stairwell, and they, wouldn't, and they didn't let me in, so I had to go to another building with crappier security. <laughs> but now I finally get to be inside, so I'm actually kind of excited yeah, about so, that. Yeah, this time it's okay, man. We uh, Global frequency, uh, 
is it destination radio or detonation radio? Um, I think it might, I think it's deton- detonation, but it uh, is detonation. I just wanted to make sure that there wasn't a, a typo and everything. I was going to say they both sound really good as titles for either like you know uh, destination rock radio, yeah. exactly. Forty two percent off, eight dollars and sixty seven cents. Um, let's see what else. That's just a few. There's there's plenty more, and you can check it out for yourself and uh, enjoy the savings at InStockTrades.com. Okay. Uh, if you see these, you see me with these at a convention, you know that John was behind it because he <laughs> told me where to buy it. So, <laughs> InStockTrades. Well, now I can officially welcome Gene uh, to Word Balloon again, and uh, you've been on before, Gene, but it's a pleasure to have you yeah. back. And uh, thank you for for coming up to uh, the station downtown and uh, doing this live in studio. It was it was excellent. I'm looking forward to this panel. I think it's going to be fun. We're going to uh, do a, a little bit of autobiographical stuff and uh, go through Gene Ha's greatest hits. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, and my sp- they're not big lows, but my lows. Um, like my, I'm going to bring. Uh, you know, maybe I'll just pass around. If hopefully no one snatches it. My original Marvel rejection letter. Excellent. Yes, you told me about that. Yeah, I'm very curious to uh, to hear about that. And you know, it's a shame we can't like CSI this thing and figure out who who was the editor. <laughs> uh, you know, that was on duty then because I, I wasn't sure. If, I suggested maybe it was Carl Potts, and I know Macchio did it for a while, Brevoort did it for a while, and then you told me that it's it was kind of a rotating job. Yeah, it was like. The most one of the most hated duties at um, Marvel. Just every two months, I think they switched who was the submissions editor, and you just had to tell all these poor folks from all across the world, "No, you can't work for Marvel. You can't work for Marvel." And then once in a while, you'd find something good, but it's kind of risky because if that guy then turned out to be bad with deadlines, uh, you know, you found it turned out you found a dud anyway. But you, then you vouch for him. So, uh, but you had to keep on doing it. And he sent me a very insightful letter where he told me I had problems with everything. It was just a checklist, really, and he checked it almost checked almost everything off. And the one thing he didn't check off, he should have checked off. But, you know, you, you need an honest opinion every once in a while to get, your, you know, so you get off your ass and actually improve. Do you have that um, original art that you submitted and everything? Uh, I do not have that anymore, I think. Um, man. Do you have anything it's, from that era, though, that you can, like, if we do have the letter, that we can look at at the panel and say, okay. And this I might is, be able to find something. Okay, okay. Something early and everything. Yeah. Who were some of these publishers that you worked for before oh. uh, DC and Marvel? See, the thing is, um, at the same time, uh, like two days after I sent off my Marvel thing as my backup plan, I sent something off to DC. And Neil Posner saw it, and like two days after Marvel got back to me, he called me by phone and said, you're not good enough to work for DC either. Oh, but, yeah, but. and he was right. But he said, I'm going to send you some sample scripts. And if you can improve enough on these sample scripts, we might be able to get you a job here. That's excellent. Yeah. And did he specify things that he wanted you to work on? Oh, yeah, yeah. He had okay. lots of things. But, um, yeah, he it it took a lot of courage. To, he developed, I mean, I can't name them right now, but he, apparently he developed a lot of talents like that because he saw potential and he was willing to put in extra hours at the office to develop the talent, hopefully, to become someone who could work for D.C. I've heard this name before. Is he still in the biz or not? No, he passed away. He, uh, oh, he died of AIDS okay. like two years or something uh, wow. after, you know, after okay, that. Wow. Okay, because, yeah, and I know, too, um, oh, God, there was a, a Vertigo, uh, Len uh, or Lee. Oh, uh, Vertigo. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I'm, I'm boy, shame on me, too. So sorry, folks. I'm sure you guys know better than we do. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, no, there have been a handful. And certainly Archie Goodwin is a guy that I, oh. I wish I had gotten to meet. Yeah, Archie uh, was – Archie is the greatest editor I've ever gotten to work with or meet. He was just he's, – he's the nicest guy. But, man, um, once again, he's an editor who took me by the hand. And uh, he offered me a story in uh, Showcase 95. 
And he said, uh, what writer do you want to work with? Name any writer. And I said, well, I mean, obviously Alan Moore. This is before my uh, top ten stuff. Yep. And he said, well, you know, Alan Moore's not working for DC anymore. Um, is there any other writer? And I said, well, then after that, you. And he said, okay, seriously, who? And I was like, no, you. I've read your stuff since I was a little kid. Absolutely I keep on reading man. it. And it's brilliant. I read the, the short story you did in A1, the British comic book. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. And creepy and eerie and all of his you know, yeah. Warren stuff was amazing back in the day. Yeah, so I did a Showcase 95 story with him. And who, who was the character? Uh, it was a psychiatrist, psychiatrist named Wyndham Vane at um, uh, Arkham Asylum. And then uh, he was working with the whole, uh, pretty much the whole rogues gallery, the Joker, Poison Ivy, Killer Croc, a few others. And um, it was the psychiatrist going insane while working with these patients. Oh, that's fun. So you kind of slowly saw him kind of... Yeah, just fall apart. Fall and apart. Just, yeah, and just visually it went from a very kind of dry storytelling style to a very wild one where it got very, very surreal. Um, and Archie's the one who had to tell me when I showed him the first pencils for the first page... No, the whole point is that it's supposed to get crazy later. You need to tone it down, Gene. And he kind of explained how everything worked in storytelling. And it was the most important lesson in comic books I ever got in my life. Hmm. Just talking on the phone with him, having him explain why he wrote the script the way he did and how it needs to be interpreted to get the point across later that, okay, now now here's a crazy scene. You know, I'm trying to think if Top Ten or Marvel Double Shot was the first thing of yours that I saw. And granted, that was about nine or ten years after... If you saw Top Ten when it, came, when it was in print, uh, yeah, that I came did. before the Double Shot stuff. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So then it was Top Ten. Um, I want to talk about Double Shot for a second, though, because that Iron Fist story that you did. Oh, yeah. I love that story. That was the first story I ever wrote for comics. Really? Oh, so you wrote Android, and I forgot that. You likely told me that in the first time we uh, we talked on Worldwide oh, yeah. years and years ago. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'm, again, because I'm horrible with names, and this is a curse that's befallen me throughout my life. The editor on that... Um, uh, I, I'm not going to name names on this, even though I can remember this name. But I said, uh, he said, which writer do you want to work with? And I said, so-and-so. And he said, great. And then we got in contact with him. He said, yes, let's all work together. And then he just disappeared. Uh. And the editor said, somebody has to write the story, Gene. And you're the only person left standing in the room. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. It was, it was exciting and terrifying. And then I started typing up scripts for the first time in my life. And the editor said, okay, Gene. This has got some potential, but it's not there yet. And once again, an editor took me by the hand and fixed things, and told, well, told me how to fix things. And then just I went through probably like five drafts. Wasn't that like around 2002? It was around 2002, yeah. Okay, because that makes sense. Because, yeah, I know it was pre-Word Balloon. I know that. And I was going to say it was early enough in the Gemis Casada era when I think they were still kind of, you know, coming out of bankruptcy, new Marvel and everything. And oh, yeah. yeah. I, everything was kind risks. of... Yeah, and I... Well, and I know, too, there was an Iron Fist miniseries likely after your story, but it was so great to see an Iron Fist story. And this was like 10 or 12 pages, something like uh, that? Something like that, yeah. I think it was, it was like, double yeah. shot, so yeah, it was yeah. Two, two stories in one. Um, not, a, not a long-lived uh, Marvel book. No, but, oh, they did such fantastic stuff. Well, and I'm glad that they've, like, retained that format... In some of these uh, side uh, things to the big events, like they did it for Original Sin. There were a lot of short stories in an Original Sin's anthology that came out while the event was going on. They did it, too, for uh, AVX, uh, Avengers versus X-Men. And you got all these like different like little pair-ups and things that you wouldn't normally see. And it gave, you know, good pair-ups, interesting t- 
opportunity for short stories and fun things. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I love uh, anthology comics from other countries and stuff like that, or, or from Dark Horses. Um, Certainly. And I, when I was younger, I used to kind of bitch and moan that, man, DC and Marvel just don't have the guts to do that anymore. And the thing is, they keep on trying. I they respect the keep, they keep they, on trying. They truly do keep on trying. Because, yeah, I know, uh, God, Vertigo had that time warp and every and, oh, and yeah. a few others in, in recent years. And uh, no, it's the same thing. Like I said, this is how Marvel's doing it. It's it. I can appreciate that. It's too bad because I mean, well, we grew up spoiled. I mean, we're we're close yeah. enough in age and everything that you know the twenty cent era and the twenty five cent era. When Tales from the Unexpected. And, oh yeah. You know where monsters dwell. Reprinting all the old <laughs> Marvel monster stuff. I remember all that, those things and the black and white magazines. God, oh, yeah. I loved all that stuff. Yeah, for a while there, Marvel had that whole. Uh, they had like a was it a monthly book where they had like four titles put into one or something. It was like two years ago. It was like a European style of Marvel magazine where they take all the. That's right. Yeah, um, it didn't last long, but they tried. And it was oversized too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd see that on, I'd see that in bookstores and stuff like that. And you know, got in uh, that format as well. I love uh, when Archie was doing that with uh, oh, Life yeah. with Archie for the Married Life, and that's how I bought it, and it was great. Yeah, and uh, man, I, I wish there were more books like this, not for my sake necessarily um, as a creator, but because it's such a great place for developing new talent. And when they do do things like that, there's always just this crop of like four or five, six amazing new superstars who just show up and then blow everyone away for years after that. Yeah. You know, DC was doing those 80 page giants. Yeah. And that was a great opportunity for writers and artists to kind of oh, come yeah. in and, and do short little stories. And it, they were great. And also they were they found a way to make it reasonably priced. Man, I'm telling you, this four ninety nine dollars <laughs> oh, yeah. for a 20 page comic, it's like, oh, man, that's not a good idea. I don't know, man. It's it's. I mean, you know, it's like good luck. I don't know. <laughs> well, and especially given yeah. how many people now are, you know, putting out image books and stuff and doing it for three fifty and you know three dollars or whatever, and and you know, giving more entertainment and quality entertainment and stuff. It's an interesting time right now, and wouldn't wouldn't you say as well in terms of the ability to make a qual- like it seems like now. And and how many years have you been in the business now? Uh, about 23 years. Okay. Well, and, and then it, then I think this is a fair question. It, you know, it seems like it is easier to make a better quality book now than it was certainly Oh yeah, 23 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I mean, uh, when I look at the kids today and it's like, um, okay, when I talk to art students, for instance, and they talk about being going to comics, very few of them want to, tr- want to get into Marvel and, or DC, and very few of them would have the chance because they don't look at submissions anymore. There is no such thing as a submissions editor duty for anyone at those places, okay. except at conventions. They'll like look at a f- few portfolios. Right, right. Um, and, you know, the thing t- I have to tell them is that just look at your favorite webcomic, look at the very first one they did, and it's probably really crappy. Just start off with your crappy work. If you have the guts and determination to keep doing it and get better and better and better, you're going to get a following. And once you get the following, then you can publish your own comic book. No question. Yeah. Absolutely. And that can be your foot in the door at some comic company because they'll be like, oh, wow, you are, you know, you have 40,000 followers, 100,000 followers, something like that. Well, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, and I don't know if, you know, the the Scott Kurtzes and, and the guys that really did come through webcomics and stuff, if they've got that meant that much of a readership. I don't know. Oh, they, I don't, I'm not sure about exact numbers, but they're enormous. And um, though the sad thing is that then they'll work for the companies that are doing licensed properties oftentimes, you know, do little side projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they'll write things like uh, the Adventure Time books or draw things. Uh, for these, and they'll have the biggest selling, some of the biggest selling books of the year, but they don't pay royalties. Yeah. Well, you know, and I was, and really this is one of the essay questions that I've started to ask a lot of the creators and stuff. And it, it occurred to me, um, is it the role of the big two? 
I think, is changing. That was the end point. That was the, the, the pinnacle of your potential cartooning career, yeah. was working for a Marvel or a DC and, and having a legacy of Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or whatever. And now it seems like uh, the big two are almost becoming college where and 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 not so much from a uh, skills standpoint, yeah. but but um, or a midpoint in your career where you can get your name out there and you you can prove yourself with licensed properties, get a fo- get that huge following, and then hey, come join Matt Fraction on his new uh, <laughs> image book, uh, you know, Brubaker Kirkman certainly. I mean, Kirkman is the the granddaddy of all this. But now when it, when there really was only one Robert Kirkman for about four or five years, now you look and you know, God. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn is doing. I mean, I'm writing. Yeah. I'm, I'm naming art uh, writers and everything, and that's why it is interesting. And I'm glad that artists are seeing the value and are getting taken off the table. Guys like Sean Murphy and um, Sean Phillips. There's two Shans, uh, <laughs> but but you know, quality artists are not taking the DC and um, and Marvel jobs because they are finding they can make more money. You know, making an image book with Writer X that has his own following as well, and that you know there's there's an opportunity there. Yeah, um, I mean, if you don't make more immediate money, I mean, there's there's not a total. Ret- you know, uh, it's nice having the royalties over the years and stuff like that from a project for DC or Marvel, but you don't own the project, right? And it's nice owning a few things before you you know uh, quit drawing and start you know just uh, taking your wheelchair to the comic conventions if there are any fans left at that point so. absolutely or god man you know you, you strike it big the way uh, you know Mark Miller and Ramita with uh, oh, Kick-Ass yeah. or you know I mean it's funny I, I'm catching up on all the Miller World uh, stuff this weekend so I read uh, Starlight and Jupiter's Legacy I caught up all on Jupiter's Legacy and everything and uh, God, I mean, no, Mark's doing amazing. The super criminals thing that he did a couple of years ago, I love that. And I, I'm really happy for guys. I mean, you know, Dave Dave Gibbons has obviously, you know, had, had wonderful success with Watchmen. Yeah. But it was really great that Mark really loved Dave so much and was like, hey, man, here's like five ideas that I got. What do you want to do? And Dave's like, all right, this uh, Secret Service uh, looks kind of interesting <laughs> and becomes Kingsman. And now there's this wonderful movie and everything. And haven't had the chance to talk to Dave or Mark about it since. But I, I know that when this when the project was going, they had already like cut the deal for the movie. It's wow. funny, 10 years down the line, when you think back to 2004, 2005, and Frank Miller had the hot Hollywood hand with Sin City and stuff like that. And I, I don't think and, – and obviously Kirkman with TV and Walking Dead and stuff. Meanwhile, Mark Miller very quietly – you know, two kick-ass movies, Wanted, Kingsman, and so many other things in development right now. Superior is in development. Uh, like I said, I believe Starlight is in development now. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's int- it's it's like Mark has really, I think, found a wonderful niche that he can really exploit and, <laughs> you know, make good ideas, make good comics. I mean, the good news is yeah. they're still good comics, but also that there's a you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for some of these things. And, you know, you own this. At the very least, you're, you've got this library of trades, hopefully, if it goes, you know, a few issues and everything that you can always have on your table. And like you said, you outright own. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, hopefully, too, that who knows, maybe it becomes a TV series, maybe it becomes a, a movie. You, you never know. Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, as far as, uh, well, um, the, the established superheroes, artists and creators and writers, yeah, the fantasy or not the fantasy. I mean, it's not it's it's doable. The goal is to own your own thing eventually and do your own thing. When you look at younger people, they don't even want to stop at the superhero comics, make, make a stop there. They just want to. And, immediately own their own thing. And it, it makes me wonder where the next talents will come to draw this stuff because um, 
you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I know it seems like, and you can tell me as, a, as an active artist that, that, you know, has the potential of getting jobs from some of the major publishers and stuff, but it seems like uh, there are more uh, international artists. Oh, yeah. You know, certainly working, you know, at the big two than, than ever before. Yeah, the t- oh man, yeah. I some of the talent I see coming out of places like, uh, I mean, frankly, uh, the whole former Spanish Empire lands, um, Brazil, Brazil's Portuguese, but I mean, uh, uh, Mexico, uh, the Philippines, just all these places where they are just so insanely talented and good. And something that I heard recently, not related to comics, but uh, as far as a hacker who's living, a computer hacker who's living inside the Philippines, uh, he pays like I think one hundred twenty-five dollars or is it two hundred dollars per month. To have a live-in twenty-four hour, twenty-four um, hour uh, housekeeper, and it's kind of like, Butler. oh man, yeah, I would never have to wash dishes or clean <laughs> my bath. Yeah, for one hundred twenty-five yeah. bucks a month, you could have an Alfred. It's like, oh man, I've never wanted to live in the Philippines before, but now I'm kind of tempted. <laughs> I understand, and and no, I and I hear similar stories as well about some of these international people that you know, well, how come you don't you know live here? They're like, I couldn't afford to live here. It's easier for me to live in my home country and make these this American money. Where it spends a lot better in in South America or Italy or wherever, you know, oh, yeah. it's it's very interesting. And I can totally see them going through the thought process of I could live as a kind of a lower middle class person in the United States, or I can stay here and be rich. Yeah, and you know, even if you, I mean, you know, an air conditioner is going to cost the same here or there, or maybe more there, but. Man, the repair man for the air conditioner are <laughs> exactly yeah yeah yeah. Personally, I would hire two twenty-four hour per housekeepers and let them actually take half a day off each. You know, <laughs> you know I, I can afford that. There you go. Exactly. Wow. There you go. Magnanimous Gene Hahn. International Gene Hahn is incredibly magnanimous in terms of his staff. So that's good. That's a good thought. You know, maybe down the oh, yeah. line and stuff. Do you ever? Do you, do you ever? Because I'll be honest, I love Chicago. I really yeah. do, and I've been here all my life. I have to say that if I were able to move and live anywhere, just for the change, the sake of change, yeah. I wouldn't mind trying uh, living someplace else. It, it would have to be near a big city, and I'd have yeah. so therefore I'd have to make a, a hell of a lot more money to make it happen. It wouldn't have to oh. be New York per se, or L- and L.A. I yeah. love I love visiting L.A. It is so far spread out; it would drive me crazy. I think, me too. Being out yeah, there. I, I like living in a walking neighborhood. Yeah, man. No, um, I'm with you. Okay, I can tell you my uh, my actual retirement plan. It's, it's uh, uh I, okay. So I, <laughs> yeah, this I, is great. I'm good, Gene, because I've got your 401k yeah. with me, and, <laughs> and I'm glad you had the. We, we managed to make this appointment tonight that we can go over these things. So okay. please tell me your retirement plan. Okay, so uh, I came up with this, and it, it, and then there's a twist at the end where it became much more possible than I thought. My idea was that I'd, um, I'm good at teaching. Uh, I'm good at teaching comics concepts, much better than I was 10 years ago. Uh, and I was thinking, man, if I could teach at a comics college inside of uh, Spain and Barcelona. I think it's called Escola Hosa, or Hoso. Okay. Uh, and uh, I love Barcelona. I love the food there. If I could learn some some more Spanish, I would love to retire doing that. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, there's a British school. Uh, you know, every big city has a British school. So there's a British school in the suburbs. And it's like, if I live near there, hopefully, I don't know if this is true yet. Hopefully, there are shops where you can buy American British products and stuff like that. I'd just be all set up and then just commute into town and teach at the school. And I said this mostly as a joke on Twitter. And Escola Hoso got back to me and said, we want you, whenever. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't speak Spanish. And they were like, it's fine. Interesting. Yeah, and it's like, okay, as long as they do fine and they still want me and 
however many years, decades, <laughs> hey, man, till I retire. Exactly. I am going there. Stay in touch. <laughs> yeah. Do you go to uh, Barcelona for uh, conventions that often? I mean, uh, not too often. often. How, how many times have you gone internationally? Uh, oh, only a handful of times, maybe 10, 15 times or something like that. That's, but it's over that's the last 15 impre- years. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Oh, but Spain is just lovely. And uh, the fact that then it's an easy plane trip or train trip to other parts of Europe. and Absolutely. Yeah. No, I don't blame you. No, I, the the few times I've gone to Europe, I, no, I love the fact that it's much like the states in terms of how easy it is to go from country to country and close by and everything, and reasonably from a travel standpoint and everything. Oh, and the best ham in the world. I'm not joking. The best which? The best ham. The best ham. Where? If you if uh in Spain, uh, in it's Spain. called Iberico ham. I'm probably getting the accent wrong on that. But if you go to Paris, like uh, the most expensive delis in Paris, and ask for the best ham they have, they will get out a Spanish ham. Okay. And they will slice it up for you. And it is insanely delicious. Well, how do they cure it that's different from American ham or whatever? Um, Fine Virginia the curing, ham. The curing process isn't totally different, but a lot of it is just in how they raise the um, the pigs. Themselves. The pigs, yeah. They're uh, a breed of pigs that are apparently like 2,000 years old. They're like from Roman times. They have black hooves. So if you get the real stuff, the Iberical um, ham leg, you'll, you want to get the, uh, the hoofs on it so you can make sure that it has the real black uh you know, hoofs and scrape it a little bit to make sure someone didn't just paint it that exactly, way to cheat you. Exactly, because you know they will. Absolutely, man. Yeah, and I've tried uh, the <laughs> Serrano ham next to Iberico ham, and the Serrano ham is delicious. It's the okay. second grade. It's the lower grade of Spanish ham. All right. But, oh, there's nothing to compare with Iberico. This I mean, is good education. I yeah. like all of this information. Oh, if you, yeah, if you get a chance, or if you go to, a, like, one of the nicer tapas places not that far from here and ask for the Iberico ham, yeah, just try it out. Just, like, a little sample. Okay. It's all expensive, right. but it's so good. Man, you know, uh, our pal, uh, you know Sal Abinati, obviously, quite yeah. well. You know, yes. Yeah, Sal's always like, you got to go to Luca, man. I swear to God. You know, in, in Italy, it's amazing. Or, you know, Angoulême. You got to go to France, man. You got to go check out Angoulême. I would love to really hit a bunch of the... Uh, the uh, the foreign conventions and stuff you know that would be that's that that is my hope as as things progress hopefully I've only been to one small convention inside of France and I've never been to, invited to Italy so I understand well I, I'm sure it'll come was when they would invite you was it for the whole body of work was it specifically because of things like top ten and Alan Moore's uh, the, the mostly Moore for connection? top ten actually yeah. okay that's, and that's, that's that's cool that's my rep so. hey man there's not, not a bad rep how did Alan Moore find you uh, I found him. Um, I'm going to name drop now shamelessly with another another Chicagoan. So uh, I'm friends with Alex Ross, and he was working for Ma- um, Rob Liefeld's Maximum Press. And I said, wow, I'm really jealous that you're doing stuff on an Alan Moore project. And he said, well, that's stupid. If was, you want an Alan Moore project, get it. He was doing Supreme then, He right? was doing covers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, doing well, yeah, those were great, those Supreme covers and everything. Fantastic stuff. And I was like, you know what? He's totally right. I need to start contacting people. So I contacted Maximum Press. Uh, they fell apart before I could do any work for them. Ah. Uh. Alan then moved over to uh, Wildstorm and America's Best Comics. And I then started sending samples to uh, Scott Doonberg, the editor there, and saying, is there any chance I can get an Alan Moore book? Alan had never heard of me, but he liked the samples. And uh, I got a book after that. I, that's how I got top ten. That's and, fantastic. And I thought, I don't want to draw all those cityscapes. I sure hope I get that Promethea book. <laughs> <laughs> but he... Alan picked his artist well, and I was much better choice for top ten than Promethea. And yeah. and then, so was Xander your choice, or was it was it uh, his? That was a last minute thing where um, Xander Cannon is who yeah. I'm talking about for people yeah. who may not know. Yeah, he ended up doing layouts on uh, top ten, but um, yeah, originally uh, I was going to be working with a college friend on the book, but then he had a dropout. And then I was like, I can't do a monthly book completely by myself. And uh, I I'd been a big fan of um, Xander's work for probably about five years at that point. 
uh, he was living in Minneapolis nearby. And I said, hey, do you want to collaborate in this book? And he's like, okay. And we figured out a process. It was very clunky at first. Um, at first, uh, he we would switch back and forth between one of us doing inks, the other doing inks, uh, one of us doing layouts, then the other doing layouts. And we very quickly figured out that to keep the look consistent, one person needed to do finishes. And uh, to do layouts quickly, we needed the guy who's, frankly, smarter and better at it, Xander. And by the second issue, that had been completely cleared up. God, I got to tell you, man, um, much like Gibbons' work on Watchmen, Xander and you on Top Ten, uh, it was just a pleasure to read because of all, you know, and obviously I'm stating the obvious for people who know Top Ten. If you're listening and have never read Top Ten, you got to because uh, the bits of business in the background make it such a much more richer experience beyond uh, the face of the story and the face of the dialogue and everything that's out front is fantastic. In addition to that, you just get the – was it Megalopolis or uh, – Neopolis. No, Neopolis. Megalopolis is Judge Dredd. Um, yeah, Neopolis, you, you really get this wonderful superhero city. Top 10 was a police procedural in oh, a superhero world. I'm j- just for the comic geeks out there, I'm going to say – uh, Judge Dredd was Mega City 1 and Mega City 2. Thank you, sir. God bless you. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, how many volumes of Top 10? Or how many? Uh, well, and I should first start off because I know you and Xander obviously continued the book uh, yeah. for a while as well. Uh, with uh, with um, Alan, I'd worked on 12 issues. Uh, then he continued with uh, Smacks. Uh, yes. And Xander, yeah, he and Xander did Smacks. Did you yeah. do, did you work on Smacks as well? Not at all. Okay. Okay. Uh, I thought the, it was Xander and him. Okay. Yeah. Then they brought in a totally different team. Then uh, me and Xander came back without Alan. That's right. Yes, and I, you know, I interviewed that writer, and I'm, and now I'm blanking on his name. And he was a very nice guy. Yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, he's you a know, great sci-fi writer. I can't remember. He, his, he really is. A, 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 was it Demio? Demio? I, I, something uh, Demio? I want to say like Phil. No, I'm thinking of Paul Demio. No, uh, with Danny oh, Bilson. Oh God, this we is can look it up because well, I know we'll him look it up while we're talking. Yeah, very nice guy, and yeah. and really, I was such a fan of the concept that you know, I mean, that's uh, that's the thing. I think. It's as much of a compliment to the people who create something that a, a, another team is brought on to yeah. write more stuff. I mean, you know, if we didn't have that, then Superman would have died with Siegel and Schuster and, and Ditko and Lee would have, you know, Spider-Man would have yeah. died with them. So you do get the opportunity of, of seeing different people do it and everything. Um, did you guys – did does – does Alan own Top Ten or does – He owns a portion of it. He doesn't own it outright. Uh, DC owns a large section too. Who all right? Oh, so you guys, you guys were just artists for hire, or uh, I, there's some weird. Um, I'm going to say that uh, quite a while ago, there uh, someone threw a bunch of licensing money at Top Ten. Uh, they bought the option, okay. um, and I got a a pretty big check out of that. So it's not just normal standard rights. Um, I got something out of it. Excellent. But I don't own. I don't own the copyright on it. Alan owns some, and DC owns some. I don't know how they split it up. I'm looking. I'm trying to find the. Uh... The name of uh, the people that uh, worked on. He sent me a really nice. He sent me a, a hilarious um, en- envelope. It was a uh, Manila envelope, but he'd done a collage, a photo collage on it of magazine things like a uh, a naked painted cartoon girl with voluptuous curves from Playboy magazine leaning on a cityscape. And uh, I feel horrible because I can't remember. I I never remember names. God, I am. I, you know, I'm looking. At, shame on me. I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia like an idiot. Yeah, top ten beyond the furthest precinct. Right, right, right. Yes, okay. indeed. Yes. Um, all right, but where's the writers? <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia, it, it, no respect it, it, for the writers. It gives you the excellent. Well, you know, and and you know, actually, I should just do comic book database, and that's where I'll find it and everything. Um, but yeah, now you know, and I, again, this might be familiar territory for for previous interviews with with you and stuff, but I'll do it anyway. 
um, the different things that were in the, in the background and stuff like that. Was it all Alan? Was it how much of it was you guys contributing uh, to uh, it as well? Originally, it was two thirds Alan. He'd uh, specify huge amounts of things in the script, but uh, within a few issues, he just would um, say there are a bunch of um, you know World War II fighter pilot characters in the background, or there are a bunch of time traveling characters in the background. And then, well, I mean, the big one is when they had the Trans World Station scene. On the first page, he wrote, um, in the first interior scene, he wrote just one page of script for that and said, there are a huge amount of time traveling and reality jumping characters in the background, and he didn't name them. So I suddenly just started scrambling, getting like 20, 30, 50, it's probably like 25 different characters I threw in the background there of just characters from different (laughs) realities. Paul uh, DeFilippo. That's it. Okay. Paul DeFilippo was the writer, and shame on us, Jerry Ordway. Yes. You know, great Jerry Ordway and stuff, and a perfect guy to do a book like Top Ten and everything, a guy that, you know, obviously can draw iconic superheroes and everything. So pretty neat. Okay. Oh, but then Alan sent me the next few pages of script. Go on. Where he hadn't seen my artwork yet, and he started saying, and I want this guy in the background who you've already drawn, and this guy in the back you've already drawn. All, almost all the references he named in that page, I'd already drawn. So I had to come up with a whole second list of reality-jumping characters. So I included things like uh, Alan Moore's version of uh, Jack the Ripper, who jumps between realities, and uh, our time periods and stuff like that. And just, it was so hard. I didn't re- I didn't remember that. Uh, that didn't happen in From Hell. Where did, where did that? It did. Uh, did it? Uh, at the end of, I'm okay, Spoilers. I didn't. Re- I did not realize that. Yeah, that, that, at, that's yeah. how he escapes at the end. Is he? Oh goes, no, he doesn't escape. Uh, or, at the end of uh, From Hell, he his soul uh, starts time traveling, and he starts seeing all these different serial killers from different time periods and seeing things from their viewpoint. Indeed. Okay. And then he becomes big, big spoiler, and then he becomes one with God. <laughs> awesome, man. Or at well, least he thinks to, he does. Well, there you go. Well, it's you know, From Hell's been out long enough. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for spoiling From <laughs> Hell. There's some guy listening to this podcast right now Church. in his time. Looking at his copy of uh, yeah from Hell, <laughs> he just bought it. Yeah, <laughs> I had I had twenty pages left, man. Just twenty <laughs> pages. You're killing me. Before DC and Marvel, did you work for Kamiko or no. any of these other smaller you oh. know Midwest uh, publishers and stuff? I okay. My first printed work was for DC, so that was uh, Green Lantern. I forgot the number. I think it's twenty three. Anyway, uh, it was a Green Lantern issue with Jerry Jones. But before then, I did work for uh, the local publishers because this was during the time of the big image explosion. And every Tom, Dick, and Harry thought he was going to be the next Stan Lee. And, yeah, I met um, uh, friends of a comic shop owner and a uh, small-time lawyer who both thought they were big time. I started drawing some stuff for them. Oh, they – actually, part of it came out as – Axis Comics, uh, they called it Axis Comics. It was the worst name ever. They were black guys from Detroit and – they named it Axis. It was horrible. But. I, kind of, I kind of remember those guys. Axis uh, Alpha. Okay. Yeah, you can see the work there. Um, Interesting. But yeah, they, yeah, I ended up drawing an issue's worth of stuff that never came out. Um, they didn't. They paid me for two-thirds of it, didn't pay me the last third. And then I went to the lawyer's office saying, why haven't you paid me for this? And he began yelling at me, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? He was kind of a young guy who looked like a fake <laughs> Tom Cruise in a polo shirt and, sun, and uh, those Wayfarer glasses. And I was just like... No one's going to remember who you are in comics ever. And yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, he's just gone now. Of course. Of course they are. That's but, hilarious. But he thought he was the next Stanley. Jesus. Well, you know, and it's I can appreciate that because I remember that 80s black and white period, too, when there were a million 
companies coming out. And, you know, God, uh, not only, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles starting off that way, but the radioactive hamsters and oh, all yeah. the other derivative. I did love the hamsters. <laughs> See, there you go. But that's the thing. I mean, you know, there was kind of in the same way that I think the current crop of self-publishing people are discovering now that, no, you don't need to have DC and Marvel numbers to you know, afford to make the book and also pay yourselves a decent salary and stuff. Yeah. And the key is obviously to be be able to, you know, be out on time and and really to communicate with the with the stores if you're not on time and let them know so they can let the readers know and more importantly that they can adjust their, you know, monthly buys when they're when they're ordering from Diamond or whoever to get their stock too. Oh yeah. Um the the one that really totally blew me away recently is uh have you seen uh Noel Stevenson's Nimona? No. Oh, it's it started off as a webcomic. Okay. Uh, and she it just come, it, uh, she became friends very quickly with the established webcomic artist, but she came out every week, very consistently with a page of beautifully told storytelling in a very naive but beautifully done style. Got better and better and better, and then she's just incredibly among the right crew. Of, uh, if you ask it, like say the Valkyries, they will be yes. all over this. And she's now writing things like the Lumberjanes. Uh, yeah, I knew I, I knew the name. So okay. go on. Yeah, go uh, on. yeah. She's collected Nimona. It's like this two hundred something page epic. Uh, ev- I don't think we've talked about the Valkyries on Word Balloon yet. Tell people about if they don't know what the Valkyries are. Go right ahead and tell okay. them. Okay, uh, there are a national network of female comic shop clerks who uh, just fall in love with books and want to promote them. Uh, t- advocate for uh female readers um they advocate for all readers i'm uh, all my friends who are in this they can you know there is they are just they're the girls who've been excluded from girl society for loving comics too much and they're living in they're working comic shops and you have to be dedicated to you know to get into that lifestyle of just like are they all inclusive or do you have to kind of prove yourself in in terms of like is there a vetting do you know I don't think there's very much of a vetting process it's just if you want to hang out and be friends with them online and stuff and is they it, just they get it, together at conventions though yeah, one creator that I know is involved Kate am I right is it Kate with an L the her last name was you know what I know I'm asking oh, the guy who uh, doesn't know names yeah, so, uh, Kate, is Kate Leith or something like that? Um, it is something like that. I do not read enough comics. Because and Molly Molly Jane Kremer, who is a Chicago Valkyrie, uh, hit me to like who to talk to, and I hope to have one of them on Word Balloon to talk about the organization. Because you know, and I call it an organization. I don't know how tightly they are organized, but I think it's a great network that if you are looking for recommendations because we are in an embarrassment of riches as far as really good quality books that are available now. Some may not be available at your store and you might want to know, hey, is this worth reading or whatever? And I think the Valkyries have kind of proven themselves to be a a very smart group of of people that that know what they're talking about. That's terrific. Yeah. And they are not there to destroy comics and stuff like that, but they're definitely there to advocate for ones that they think aren't being noticed. So like, I think they were a big force in helping uh, Ms. Marvel become a hit. Um, Let me see. And the, uh, at um, Emerald City, uh, their panel was led by, and again, because I'm horrible with names, I'm going to have to ask for your help, uh, the writer of Captain Marvel. Oh, G. Willow Wilson. Yeah. Oh, oh wait. What's oh, no, no, excuse no. me. Kelly Sue DeConnick. Yeah, Kelly Sue DeConnick. I think she was leading the panel. Will, G. Willow Wilson doing Ms. Marvel, but Kelly yeah. Sue doing Captain Marvel, of course. Yeah, yeah I did I did see that, that Kel was doing that. Um, yeah, I was talking to her before or right after Emerald City. Did you go to Emerald City? I did not. No, I haven't been there for years. Yeah, you know, neither so. have I. And the last time I went, I had the flu. So maybe that's like another reason why sometimes I'm not able, you know, that it's in my head. I better not go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, you know, it's too close to C2E2. Yeah, I'm preparing for uh, yeah for a big announcement at C2E2. So 
it timed just perfectly wrong for me to actually show up at Emerald City this year. Well, and I mean, God, uh, again, as we're recording this, and it's uh, it will be out uh, Tuesday, so people know. I mean, WonderCon just wrapped up in Anaheim, and uh, I, I know that uh, is MegaCon is it MegaCon around this time as well? Oh, Florida, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just they're stacked up now, man. Yeah, I mean, it is it is nuts. And to be honest. I always am frustrated by uh, C2E2's proximity to so many of these of these shows as well. Yeah, and I, and I kind of worry about that in terms of I'm like, oh man, I you know I know there's a whole bunch of people that aren't coming because they just went to WonderCon or they just went to Emerald City, and you know they, you, these things stack up. And as an artist, I know it's even harder to do a ton of shows because obviously it cuts into work time. Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny. I mean, just comic books are now kind of leading these pop culture you know conventions and stuff like that, which you know. At first, I was just offended, like, it's called a Comic-Con. Why aren't there more comics at all these conventions? But frankly, you know, our books are called comic books, and they're mostly not funny books anymore. That's true. It's no. language evolves. You know, and I and I kind of share your slight frustration where yeah. they put Comic-Con in the title of the convention, but the reality is there really aren't that many comics at those at those shows. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I do think that the the – the people that go to them are smart enough to know which are real comic shows and which aren't. Yeah. And and to be honest, um, you know, we can get precious about it because I've got friends that don't go to C2E2 for panels. They don't go – they just go to shop and and hang out and they, and they love uh, some of – and C2E2 is a good show that actually does have good programming oh, yeah. and things like that. But I know that like some of these others that call themselves Comic-Cons that really aren't. They don't care. They're like, hey, man, I'm just here to shop and, and really just go to the swap, you know, go to the, the dealer's tables and they have a great time. Yeah. You like, want, All right. If you want to meet an old sitcom star or something like that, go to those. It, it's you fine. know, I just yeah. met the Green Power Ranger. It's the greatest <laughs> day of my life. Fantastic. Okay. I'm not, I'm still bitter about this, but hopefully in a few years I'm not because I should not be bitter about these things. But I get very annoyed of, oh, and then they came because they wanted to meet um, a YouTube star who... Um, who just he's like 18 years old and yells obnoxious things and do they have tables i don't know how they do it but i've just been like apparently that's the new thing it's just like okay i've accepted that old sitcom stars and all that can show up now but yeah 18 year old youtube stars who yell obscenities at and do pranks on random people going down the street well yeah that gets a little old and i and and also god um i was on a press junket for for pete holmes the the guy who had the tbs talk show after conan for a while and uh, excellent podcaster and great guy, funny comedian, excellent podcaster, big, huge fan of his podcast called You Made It Weird. And um, he was – this was at New York two years ago and it was before the TBS show went on the air and they just had a big press junket. And I was waiting to interview him and I'm like, you know, all right, fine. And my nephew was a huge fan of Pete Holmes and he kind of hit me to him. And I'm like, all right. And I do think he was funny and also knew that you know, from his YouTube videos, he, uh, he did the Batman Bane Dark Knight Rises uh, parody uh, videos and stuff like that. So the guy knew comics. And he did the ones, too, with Professor X firing everybody from the X-Men. It was kind of like a combination of The Apprenticeship and the X-Men. It was very funny. I need to track these down. Oh, it's good stuff. He did a good Sherlock one, too, in fact. Uh, But anyway, um, you know, so I was was waiting to talk to Pete. Yeah, there were all these, like, YouTube stars, as you say, that, oh, God. You know, it doesn't matter who they're talking to if it was – Harrison Ford or the Green Power Ranger, they give them the same shtick and, 
the one guy had a had a wrestling championship belt. You're a champion, and that's why you're on my show, and I want to give you this belt. And then, of course, he'd be off camera. He's like, I, I need the belt back. <laughs> I, I really wasn't giving. It was really just for the camera. And it's like, okay. Uh, and it was just like I felt bad for these celebrities because they're just like bombarded with these people that – could care less and I really hey it's the me show come watch me and I really try to make word balloon not that yeah so I'm, I'm gonna say there are people on YouTube who are doing something very similar to what you're doing kind of the smart oh, sure yeah and some of them become huge stars doing it but oh absolutely and them I'm happy with but yeah again the people just who are getting famous for yelling obscenities and pulling pranks <sighs> I remember that one wizard Chicago show when that one douchey asshole like uh, approached Rob Liefeld and gave him the how to draw comics the Marvel way. Hey, you need <gasps> you need this more than I do. And it's like, <sighs> fuck you. And it was uh, so great to see the whole comics community kind of stand up and be like, no, uh, you're a douche. Yeah. And, you know, and even people are like, listen, I'm not a Liefeld art, art fan, but nobody deserves that. Fuck you. And I was really happy that so many people just kind of stood up and it's like, no, that's bullshit, man. That's really wrong. So what you know, to do. Rob Liefeld. I mean, I like Rob a lot. I, I do. He's he's incre- he's I've never heard anyone say that he's ever been mean to anyone he's always exactly. been sweet he's always been supportive he runs an honest business when he runs a business his employees love him because he treats them fair he absolutely uh, he has great support from his employees i can attest to that from many people that have interviewed that have worked with rob liefeld yeah. yes sir and he supports their creativity because you wouldn't get the um the current run of profit absolutely yeah if he was yeah. some guy who was like you're going to only follow my vision and anything that makes, you know, is different. I'm going to crush. Well, and that and that shows you that that whether you are a fan of Liefeld art or not, that profit, you know, there's there was a great idea there. And, you know, again, to kind of take the kernel of that idea and spin it in an interesting way. Great for Rob for finding the right guys to do it and, and have that vo- same with glory. Yeah. You know, I mean, all that stuff was was terrific. I was very happy for him that he was doing that. And God, Larson doing Supreme was interesting, and oh, yeah. uh, Joe Keating <laughs> doing Glory and everything. Yeah, I thought it was pretty neat stuff. Very, very cool, man. I quite agree. Absolutely. What? What? I'll ask you, and it's okay. What? What podcast do you listen to? Uh, I listen to yours sometimes. Uh, let me see. Oh, there's Wendy's. Partially, Wendy, I'm going to say I'm gonna look, Wendy yeah. Freeman. Double yeah, page double page spread. spread. Um, and partially, this is Chicago bias. Um, let me see. I'm going to say after that, actually, I listen to a huge amount of history podcasts. Please. Uh, let me see. There's a British history podcast by, I think he's living in L.A., but he was born in England. So he sounds totally like an, an L.A. DJ, but he's actually British, and he has British relatives and stuff like that. Um, uh, <laughs> for ages, I listened to, like, uh, History of Rome podcast, uh, the Byzantine History, uh, the 12 Byzantine Emperors podcast. Okay. Uh, and I heard some saying once upon a time that uh, old men, when men get old, they start listening to military history. And it's like, oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in fairness, there's another old man that does occasionally find military history fascinating. A lot of technological advancements happen because of war. Oh, yeah. And and it really, like uh, David McCulloch, the wonderful historian who wrote the John Adams book and the Harry Truman book and – Excellent stuff. His most recent book about all the Americans that went to Paris in the eight from like 1830 to like 1850. It's it's pre-industrial revolution. But to learn the arts or lawyers and all of these interesting thinkers that went to kind of broaden their minds by going to Paris. He had said that World War One even though it was, you know, about 15 years post uh, the turn of the century, that's really when the 20th century really leapt forward and became its own thing because of the advancements in aviation and radio and all of these things that really were made for the war. 
And, and yeah. you know, again, we luckily were able to live peacefully afterwards and, and, <laughs> and, and enjoy the spoils of, of those advancements and everything. So it's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, I think it was also part of the reason why it was such a golden age for science fiction back then is just life had changed so quickly, so fast. They tried to imagine what life would look like if it kept on going at that pace. Absolutely. And yes. Yes. It's... Yeah, it's, it's well, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to work on that uh, television show, Prophets of Science Fiction, and work specifically on one of the episodes was Jules Verne. And I was so pleased that they asked me to be part of it because I was a huge fan. And it kind of forced me to be able to speak about it with any level of not authority, but just interest and passion for the subject. Because I'm, I'm, not, an, I'm not, not an expert. I'm just an enthusiastic fan. But it was that very thing about Vern that he saw the science around him and was just able to extrapolate, well, if this keeps going in this direction, we can likely do this. And applying yeah. this steampunk technology to these inf- amazing things and finding plausible ways to do it. And my favorite fact about Vern was that uh, for his story – um, from the Earth to the Moon, um, he he's the one who came up with the fact that, well, if they're going to do a moonshot, it probably geographically would have to happen in a place like Florida. Hmm. He's seeing this in France. He's thinking yeah. of this shit in France. And this is the right trajectory. This is the kind of, you know, just various basic science things that NASA ended up actually using because he's like, yeah, you know, uh, he makes sense. It does make sense for us to launch from here. And, and it's like, wow. <laughs> and Jules Verne was thinking about this stuff literally a hundred years before you know Apollo happened. Pretty oh, crazy. Man. I love that stuff. <laughs> no, I find that stuff fascinating. And I, you know, I'm I, I'm a, I'm a more of a 20th century history fan than ancient history and stuff. But I, you know, it, it, depending on how, like you were saying, the Byzantine era and things. I, uh, but I, but yeah, I'm a I'm a 20th. I, I really think it was a fascinating hundred years, and I, you know, all the different changes and stuff. Uh, have you heard of the? Uh, I'm going to pronounce this horribly wrong. Antiki theory uh, mechanism? No. Um, so they found this thing in the Mediterranean Sea. It's like a, it's about two thousand years old. It's ro- from the Roman Empire, and it's a, it looks like a little tiny uh, pocket watch with okay. lots of gears inside of it, which is supposed to be impossible. There's right. not supposed to be that kind of detailed Absolutely. pocket watch gears. Sure. And uh, it's all encrusted over because it's been salt water for two thousand years. But after they've been studying it for like thirty years or something, I think now, and X-raying it and putting it through different MRI type machines, and they finally figured out that it's a celestial clock. Wow. Yeah. And you can, by turning the gears in it, you can figure out when, you know, of course, the stars stay in the same place relative to each other, but then you can figure out where the planets are, like Mars, Venus, Jupiter. Holy cow. Yeah. Accurately uh, by just turning the knobs. And it's just a little thing you can carry in your pocket. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the detail and the quality of the gears they had, and that was just insane. Um, the yeah Roman history to me is just fascinating because there's so many ideas that we think of as very modern that were around back then. I mean, I mean, you know, the, of course, I mean, another obvious case is the sewers of Rome were not matched by modern technology until like, you know, the 19th century. Wow. And people were just before then, before the 19th century, London was an incredibly filthy place with all the sewage going down trenches at best or just down the middle of the street. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's just explains but, like why things like the Black Plague and some of the, <laughs> the oh, yeah. famine and the, the, the disease was happening as it was. Or I'm not, this is going to sound like a joke. Julius Caesar was a hipster. In what way? Uh, he was a young punk kid who swaggered around, uh, wore his uh, his toga wrong, 
uh, loosened his belt in the wrong way, where like the old people were just like, "No, you don't wear toga that way." And he's just like, "No, that's how I'm going to wear it." And Shut then, up, everyone, old man! Yeah, You're not the literally, boss of yeah. me. You're was, not the emperor of me. He was in his twenties, and like all the young kids began copying him because he was the hip hip kid, and it was just that's he could, hilarious. He get away with it. Yeah, it turned out he also happened to be talented at everything else. But yeah, he just outraged people by doing stuff like that. I mean, that's and, cool. And here's the weird thing: in medieval times, people could not understand what they were ta- they were talking about. Like fashion a young kid dressing wrong and everyone else copies him we don't understand this in medieval times it wasn't until like the 1700s that people began saying oh it's starting to happen now we understand that's crazy yeah i see there you go that's interesting i like it gene yeah see i wish you had some of the titles of some of these uh, podcasts in because then we could really like you know <laughs> oh uh lars brown's uh byzantine 12 byzantine emperors um uh, the History of Rome podcast is pretty famous among uh, history podcasts, where it's a more okay. refined version of that. And it went for like, uh, I think he did it for like four years, just from the founding of Rome, the mythological founding of Rome, all the way until, uh, I think it was like uh, the, fall of the, the fall of the empire, essentially. Did you read, uh, and now I'm blanking on his name, it was Scotty's collaborator on all the Wizard of Oz books, Scotty Young, uh, the guy who did Age of Bronze. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm horrible with names too. He's he's a great guy and he's a brilliant writer. Um, Hang on, yeah, <laughs> that's why we got. That's why I pulled up the computer, man. Oh, um, shame on me. I'm also going to mention Eric. It's definitely oh, Eric. Okay, Eric, but I but I, hold on, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm just going to mention one more podcast while you're looking that up, which is um, after the history of Rome. Eric Shanover. Eric Shanover. Okay, yeah. After history of Rome. Or Shan Hour. Uh, yeah, on. the guy's doing a new podcast called um, uh, Revolutions, where he's gone over. Um, the British uh, Revolution with uh, Cromwell and all that. The American Revolution. Uh, he's doing the French Revolution right now, which is far more twisted than I thought it was. Uh, and he's going to do other revolutions in the future. And they just, they've just been great. That's cool. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. I'm a fan, man. I, I, no, that's that's pretty neat. Yeah, Eric Shanauer and uh, Age of Bronze. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah I, wish I wish someone would license that for a movie and... Do his interpretation of oh the Trojan? Oh, my God. Yeah. The well, Trojan you War. know, that that would have to be another Game of Thrones where you'd have to, you know, really do it for like several years, obviously, to really do it right. Oh, the yeah. Way that, the way that Eric's been doing the comic and everything. Good God. Yeah, but the character development, that's great. And all the Troy movies and stuff they've done, which has been <laughs> – the, the writing's so horrible on those movies. Um, you know what I like as far as Roman stuff, uh, and I'm sure you did too, I, Claudius. Yeah. I'm a big I, Claudius fan. Did you ever – I've seen some of it, but I couldn't get all. I haven't gone all the way through it. Yet. Oh, really? Oh yeah. my god! And it, I mean, you know, for comic book fans, uh, the guy who plays Voltan in uh, the Flash Gordon movie is um, <laughs> Augustus Caesar, the grandson of Julius. Okay. And that's where it starts with him oh. as emperor and everything. Yeah. But oh no, it's I, I love it. It's it's a it's a great soap opera in the best ways that Game of Thrones is a great soap opera as well. And uh, I'm sure that Martin might have uh, taken a few pages from Robert Graves and just in terms of storytelling and, you know, keeping things interesting. Uh, I forget how far back those those Claudius uh, diaries, Yeah, oh, you know, yeah. When, whenever Robert Graves, you know, wrote that, the, the original basis for what became I, Claudius and everything. But it's, oh, it's great. And Derek Jacoby, I mean, it's an all-star cast. Yeah. They're incredible. Uh, God, it goes back to, and I don't know if he's wearing a wig or if it is his own natural hair, but this was made in the early 70s and Patrick Stewart plays um, Tiberius's captain of the guards, and I forget the name of his character, huh. but he's got this great supporting role where he was his like kind of henchman, uh, killing a lot of uh, Romans and stuff that were against Tiberius, and it's just you know, God, it's great seeing young early seventies Patrick Stewart, you know, good twenty years before Next Generation and everything, pretty neat. So, oh, man. oh yeah, good stuff, man, hilarious. Okay. Oh, do you want to take a bathroom break? What's up? No, I was just thinking to myself, 
I should probably start steering this back to comics. <laughs> we can if you want. No, no, no we're no, good. I I mean, we're, just, okay. we're just having a casual conversation. Well, like I said, I, we can't we can't talk about the big yeah thing. We're going to do a panel at at, at C two E two, and uh, it's um, you know I mean obviously we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hit on your history there. So I mean that's the thing. People are going to be hearing uh, Gene again in about a month because as soon as uh, the panel happens and stuff, we'll record it and uh, present it to you as well. If you can't be at C2E2, I certainly hope you can come. You'll get the 12-page comic that uh, Gene has been uh, talking about as well. Um, you know, or, yeah, well, we, we obviously it's a comic. We can at least say that much, yeah, right? It is, yeah, it's a 12-page comic. So. Uh, yeah, and we'll have yeah uh, the first peek at the story that anyone will get publicly. So. Excellent, yeah. And we'll, go, we'll certainly go more into de- detail on that um, at the panel. And, you know, depending on how the panel goes and stuff, we'll, we'll either add an addendum to that if we need to as far as more information and things. Um, but we want to, you know, we wanted to make you aware of that. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see where we are time-wise. We're at about an hour. I mean, we can wrap okay. it up if you want to wrap it up or anything. Cool. I mean, no, I'm cool to keep on talking and stuff like that. I was just kind of afraid. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know how much the conversation should wander and stuff like that. Because usually you're, you say pretty on focus on comics and stuff like that. So well, it's kind of like, I can geek out on Roman history forever. That's a, my problem. I was like. Well, no, you know, we, we, you and I, when we talk, we've mostly kept it to comics and things. And I think it's mostly because we just didn't know each other very well. But I, yeah. and I mean, and, um, you know, I mean, I. I like I said. I mean, the the panel itself will be autobiographical, so we'll go more into detail on top ten and some of the other your your big you know landmark moments. We've talked in the past before about um, you know uh, like certain moments, like uh, and and I know we're going to bring it up in the panel. Your your uh, your one of your Eisners. Yeah. Uh, your, is it your only Eisner, or do you have a couple Eisners? I have four. You have four Eisners. Yeah, because I work with um, in, I have some talent, but also I work with amazing writers. <laughs> So you have you've won Eisner's with, uh, let me say, I won three with Alan Moore, and one with Brad Meltzer. Right. Okay. And I wanted you know, and I will talk about that at the panel, the Brad Meltzer JLA comic in particular, because that, from an art standpoint, is interesting. The way the the comic book was presented, and I think you know, obviously for the panel's sake, we're gonna need, we'll need, use the visuals to even explain it a bit more. Oh yeah, and uh, oh yeah, Brad Brad was the more visually courageous one. He just said, "Trust me on this. Do the panels this way, and it will work." And I said. Are you sure about that? And he's like, really, really, trust me. And I did it because it was actually less work for me. And I was like, people aren't going to buy this comic because I'm not putting enough work into it. But it worked. It sure did. No, it's a, it's a great comic if people don't remember. And it was during Brad's JLA run that was incredibly popular. I miss Brad in comics. He's so busy doing uh, children's books now and his history television shows. And I keep in touch with him. He's got a new novel coming out uh, in June. Oh. And he'll be coming back uh, to Word Balloon to, to promote that. Uh, later this summer, and that's the that is the nice thing that Brad has always like been a good friend of Word Balloon, and he's appreciated my support of him. And so when you know when he does have something new, I'm always like you know, dude, you're always welcome to talk about it here. And he takes me up on it. We always have a fun conversation. Yeah, we haven't worked together since then, but um, he's done uh, nonprofit stuff where it's like that is so awesome. I much must help you with that, and like saving um, the Siegel and Schuster house inside of Cleveland. So. What, did you, what did you do for it? Did you do a, a Superman sketch? Or, uh, uh, I did a recreation of a Superman cover in my style. It was of uh, Superman taking a Nazi, uh, I think it was an 88 gun, and then bending the gun into a pretzel. That's cool. Oh, that's fun. That's excellent. One of my prized possessions is uh, Gene did a Golden Age Superman uh, for me for the Hero Initiative back in the day at uh, the Windy City Comic Con. Oh. <laughs> yep, that's where we did it. And uh, and that's that's one of my favorite pieces and stuff. And you've had the opportunities to work on Superman, but at interesting times where, you know, I mean, you, you were part of that Rags Morales, Graham Morrison uh, action comics run. Yeah. 
And you were doing a lot of the Krypton stuff, as I recall. Yeah, I got to invent the look of Krypton, uh, which for me was, okay, I knew that the new Superman suit was uh, just an, a plain old Kryptonian battle suit. So therefore, everyone was going to be wearing fashions like that. But, you know, uh, not everyone's going to be wearing a battle suit all the time. So they're not all going to be dressed the same way, but similar. And it was that was huge fun. Just drawing Jor-El and getting to invent a new Jor-El suit was just a great joy. Um I drew um, Lara inside of what I thought was an evening dress, but that turned out someone a later artist decided, no, this is just what she wears all the time because she's got super. She's it's it's Krypton. She's got super technology, so <laughs> she can wear that all the time. It's not a problem. And the one version of Superman that honestly I really wish they would have stuck with was the Flashpoint Superman idea. Uh, I just thought it was so smart and interesting. And if you truly wanted to come at Superman from a different way. This would be an interesting way to do it that, you know, he's discovered uh, by by the government and they're afraid of him. And so they keep him out of the sun and he's that emaciated uh, Superman. And so, you you know, how much of that look was already worked out because you did that Flashpoint Superman miniseries? Uh, The basic designs were uh, created by um, all of a sudden I can't remember who the lead artist who uh, drew the. The main uh, Flashpoint book is because I'm bad with names. Um, I'm thinking of his artwork right now, but anyway, uh, yes, another artist created the look of uh, Superman and a few other and some of the main, and all the main characters like Wonder Woman and stuff like that. Was it Kubert? Kubert, yeah. Adam or Andy? I forget. Uh, see, I'm so bad with names. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was Adam, but oh god, I'm just going to get into trouble now. Yeah, uh, the Kuberts will be listening to this and just saying, "Oh, that Gene. Why can he never tell us apart?" Anyway, um, yeah, but I got to design a lot of the other stuff uh, and just throw just threw a huge amount of DC and Superman history into that. It was just a huge amount of fun um, and uh, inventing my look of how I was going to handle uh, X-ray vision, which later turned out to be pretty close to what they did in the movie. So that was fun. In the cartoon? Oh, no, in the actual uh, Man of Steel movie. Oh, OK. Yeah, it was just uh, I was just kind of surprised. Like, wow, when uh, yeah, yeah, young Clark Kent inside of grade school looks at people and sees X-ray vision, it kind of looked like what I was doing. So it was fun seeing someone do that. That's cool. That's good. Yeah, what did you think of uh, Man of Steel? Uh, okay. I think <laughs> that everyone's that uh, the common criticism is valid that it'd be nice if Clark had saved more lives when he got into super fights. Um, for me, it made sense that he'd be... He's out of his death. He's never even been in a, a real fist fight before ever in his life. So he's going to have trouble. He's going to. Ha- he's just going to be kind of holding on for dear life. Literally, a lot of time he was holding on for dear life. And if you've ever seen somebody who doesn't know how to punch properly and they're getting into a fight, it's sad. It's sad watching them not hold know how to hold their wrist properly and how to align their thumb or putting a thumb inside their fingers or something sad like that. That's kind of what he was going through. But for me, this is this will all make sense if. In the next movie, he takes the lessons and says, I am never again going to allow civilians to die the way they died during that fight. This is going to burn in my gut forever, and I'm going to save them, whatever it takes. If I die doing it, I'm going to save them. If they don't do that in the next movie and they have another fight like that, it's like, okay, you don't understand Superman. I think it's almost uh, inevitable because it just seems like that is going to be the way that, A, Batman doesn't trust him and yeah. comes to – because for what – and I'm kind of disappointed that we know as much as we do about the next movie. But it just seems logical that that's the uh, direction Batman is coming from. But more importantly, that's the direction Luther is coming from in terms of how can we trust this guy? You call him a hero – Look at how he destroyed our city. Look at all the collateral damage that happened. How do we trust this guy? And I think that's good. I liked I, Jeff uh, and Jeff Johnson um, 
Gary Frank did uh, Superman's Secret Origin, and I was very s- disappointed. As much as I liked what Grant and Rags and yourself did yeah. in that Action Comics run, um, I thought that that really was an elegant solution to all the various disparate uh, versions of Superman's story, and was able to put it all together. And that way, if you liked the movie, there were th- there were shreds of that in there. Uh, they they solved the Legion of Superheroes problem finally. Yeah. In, a, in an elegant way that it's like good because he needs to be part of the Legion and stuff. And uh, and then, of course, a couple of years later, they, they threw it all out. It'll be interesting to see now when we come out of Convergence what the DC universe looks like. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just I, I thought that uh, that was like his main reason for Luther was, hey, man, he's an alien. We don't know what he's made of. Yeah. Why? Why are? Every, why is everyone so trusting of this alien? And I think that is a good human response to Superman. That anybody, you know, you got you got to find a reason why you can understand where the villain is coming from. In some in some good cases, and I think in the case of Luther, that's you know. Yeah. Okay. This has got me thinking. On um, uh, I signed a non disclosure agreement, but I think I can say this much. I worked. I did some small bit of work on uh, Justice League: um, Gods and Monsters, the new DVD coming out. Cool. Uh, it's nothing. Everything I did got redone by people later, so nothing that's distinctively Gene Ha shows up. Uh, it'll actually be on the box. Um, okay. But I got to watch the DVD early so I could see what the, the designs were that Excellent. I was going to be playing. Oh with. wow, man! Yeah. And then when I saw recently that the plot of the DVD in detail had been leaked on the internet, and I don't know if this is going to be months before it actually comes out. Yeah, because they still haven't released the uh, Son of Batman uh, sequel and everything that's coming up, and yeah. I know that. So, I, I, but they might have already s- said what it is. But go yeah, on. It's so, yeah, uh, uh, it's been leaked. On, uh, com- I think it was um, anyway. Um, Comics Beat had a leak on the plot, which they'd gotten from another website. Okay, and if you get a chance to avoid the leaks on this and just see this Justice League Gods and Monsters without any spoilers, it is amazing because they just tease all these things early on and they set up these mysteries of who is the new wonder woman who is the new batman who why superman this way and if you just wait to see it in the movie to find out who they are it is just masterful storytelling if you go into it knowing all this stuff you're going to sit through 20 minutes of mystery where you already know who the murderer is Ugh. and it's just going to be it's it's going to be ruined Dude. yeah that's that's kind of i i i think that that's uh that's the problem right now with a lot of the comic book stuff is yeah. that, that that stuff gets out. And while well, part of it, it – from a comic book standpoint specifically, retailers need to know what they're buying. Yeah. So I do understand that. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the internet being what it is and everything, things get out. It's too bad that the animation is like that. And, and I hope that, yeah, I, as you say, depending on what, what is leaked but before this stuff comes out, hopefully yeah. – I don't. Yeah. It, it'd still be a great story if you know the leaks, but it's so much better of a story if yeah. you get to just. I mean, it's again, it's like going to, into a murder mystery and knowing who, knowing the plot. It's just, it's not as much fun. I'm, I'm pleased to say that a lot of the writers uh, have become good acquaintances and yeah. friends, and are so excited about their stories. Are like, you want to know what happens? And I'm like, no, I don't want to know what happens. I want to read the goddamn thing. Oh, that's awesome. Stop it, man. <laughs> so, I mean, I appreciate it, but yeah, by the same standpoint, I'm like, Ugh, all right. You know, and and, and, and I, sometimes it's, I mean it is fun. It's fun to know, but yeah, it's like oh man, I wish I had known. I would have really enjoyed like being surprised by that. So I don't know, and that also drives me nuts. I mean, this is an old chestnut pet peeve of mine: is when uh, comic reviews come out on a five-part story and they're on issue two, and sometimes you know the writers purposely making things like 
there's no way in hell this hero would act this way unless something else was going on. Something else is going on. We're not going to discover it until the end of issue four or beginning or maybe even beginning of issue five or whatever. But that's the thing. There's a reason why things are strange early on. And there are too many folded armed critics that are just like, well, that would never happen or this this doesn't fly. And it's like, let him tell this goddamn story. You're only on chapter two. How do you know what the fuck is going to happen by the time it's over? So, yeah, that's yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. It's, well, it's, yeah, it's exactly my attitude toward Man of Steel, which is it's issue one. If they finish up this arc in issue two, I'm going to be perfectly happy. I'm going to give them their chance, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to crap on them. No, that's that. that's, and I and I understand that, and I and that's I can appreciate that. I I uh, yeah yeah. I don't know. I I'm I'm I will admit to a little fanboy nervousness when it comes to um, the guys who are doing it. Just be, and I mean, God, David Goyer has written so many great comic books, and I know he knows what he's doing. Um, and I've like I like a lot of what Zack Snyder has done uh, movie wise. The one thing though that was missing from Man of Steel for me, and I've said this a million times, was Superman just didn't seem to be enjoying himself very much. And, and yeah, the the best scene was him learning how to fly for the first time. That yes. was the best scene of the whole movie. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, well, from a rescue standpoint, I thought the scene on the flaming oil rig was excellent. Yeah. And that was pure Superman. But. You just kind of miss, and I and I understand that they're very mindful of the Boy Scout, and they don't want them to be too corny, and, and I can appreciate all that, yeah. but it, it, they, it was almost to the point where there was very little humanity left in the guy, and um, that kind of bothered me. I just, I wanted little moments of him being like, hey, is everybody okay? Because just to kind of reassure yeah. that, no, this is this is our friend. This guy, This guy just wants to do the right thing. And I think there were examples of that. God, the my favorite is uh, the trucker that uh, is such a douche and stuff. And that was excellent. That was awesome. Yeah. You know, but I mean, that's the th- and, and, and that's OK. That was an angry moment. But that's the thing. I wanted some more happy moments where this guy's like, oh, my God. And, and even the one moment where he comes back and he sees his mother and he's like, Mom, I found out who I am. I know where my people come from. I know everything. That's wonderful, Clark. <laughs> and she starts crying. What's the matter, Mom? Well, there's more tragedy. And it's like, oh, man, the guy can't even have two seconds of happiness with his mother. All I, right. Okay, this isn't an absolute rule in storytelling, <laughs> but I have I have a rule for myself that usually works as a rule of thumb. Somebody inside a movie like that should be having fun. It doesn't have to be the hero, but somebody does. Yeah. And, yeah, nobody's really having fun. No, no. So how about a more recent uh, superhero movies? What if, you know, what did you see uh, from last year or this year? Oh, geez. Uh, so I'll start naming movies. Uh, did you see Captain America, The Winter oh, yeah. Soldier? Yeah, I saw that. Did you like it? Yeah, that was a great movie. I love that movie. Uh, Guardians? Uh, gar- oh, yeah. And that one, it worked because people were having fun. And they could make jokes. And they had yes. some serious moments, but... Yeah, it's it's a common thing. Um, there's this thing where, like, in American war movies, we tend to be very earnest. And I was reading um, uh, a long time ago. I read this memoir by uh, a guy, guy who I think was a writer on the James Bond movies. I can't remember the name offhand because I'm Gene. Tom, I remember Tom Mankiewicz, perhaps, because he also wrote not, uh, not, the, the Donner Superman. Movie. It was a very it was a very British sounding name, but he he was fought in Burma in World War II. Go on. And he was talking about the British experience, what it was like being a British soldier there. And you know how in American movies you always have the speech where. Sarge, I'm afraid. Are you afraid? And then Sarge says, Soldier, every warrior is afraid. <laughs> in this, I mean, this is a guy talking about his actual experience in World War II. He came out and said, I'm terrified. And they just began mocking him. Not saying, we're afraid too. No, it's just, 
You're afraid. Oh, you Buck have up, no guts. Yeah, 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 just, yeah, yeah, just <laughs> totally busting his balls. Just constant busting of his balls. And that's they how said he it handled. much more erudite than, yeah. I, than I just did, obviously. Yeah, bollocks. They busted his bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just... <laughs> No, no one talked about their feelings seriously and stuff like that. It was just that's cool. It was just it was just so amazingly British. That's that's fantastic and funny. That's cool. All right, more movies. X Men: Days of Future Past. Oh, I, man, it's just it feels like almost like I saw it yesterday and almost like I saw it three years ago. But yes, yes, that was a wonderful movie too. And Big Hero Six is another one. Big Hero Six, I finally just saw two weekends ago. I liked it a lot. Oh man, yeah, I just. Yeah, I actually got more movies than I thought I did. <laughs> I know. I'm the same way where it's like, oh, my, I did see all those. I still haven't seen Kingsman uh, Secret Service, and I still want to. My wife saw that, and she loved it. And she's, oh, that's cool. Yeah, she can be a pretty harsh critic on superhero movies, but she loved that one. While we're talking, uh, and it's not a superhero movie, but the, the guy was a superhero in the singing world. Uh, they're doing a four-hour Frank Sinatra documentary on HBO. Oh. I'm I, all over that, man. I read about that in AV Club. And- yes, I read that review as well. I, still, <laughs> I, I saw part one. I thought it was excellent. So, and I want to see uh, Alex Gibney is the filmmaker. He also made the Scientology. Uh, oh, going clear. Yeah, and I and I really want to see that. Oh man. Okay. So, um, and he did Mr. Dynamite, the James Brown documentary as well. There's so many things where if I was uh, if I was a writer by trade and got into that instead of as an artist by trade, I'd be writing so many weird comic books on weird subjects. So, like, obviously there'd be something about an era of Roman history that you never heard about. Uh, Okay, I'm going to say, just say uh, Emperor Gallienus. I think that's the name. And his big opponent is literally named Posthumus. Sweet. It's like, what is the, that is the greatest name for a villain ever. And he's real. <laughs> and he took over France. And the emperor had to try to get it back from him. Um, so what, see, oh, so going clear. what great thing did Posthumus do that now we, we say that when we acknowledge somebody after their death, it's posthumously? Oh, uh, he, uh, he was born after his dad died. So he was named after his father, so posthumously. No, he was named named posthumously because he was born posthumously after his dad's death. Okay. All right. But it's just such a great name in English of just like, it sounds like (laughs) he came back from the dead as a zombie. And you, That's I, true. I, I would totally That's play true. that up. Why hasn't the Phantom Stranger met Posthumus in a, in a battle? That's a very good question. I like that. Yeah, and there were Doctor uh, Strange. Yeah, everyone wants to Nightmare do. Nightmare Posthumus are coming after me. Yeah, everyone wants to do a comic book or a story or a pop culture story during the reign of Julius Caesar or something like that. But the really interesting part of Roman history for a comic book or story like that is like the third, fourth century when you have the Germans coming down. The Germans make everything much more interesting. <laughs> Seriously, you have the Roman generals are often Germans. You have the crazy Germans coming down from there, and they're like, they've got these crazy shrines made out of the bodies of dead Roman centurions. Jesus, and they're just nuts. It's then you have like this, all the empires coming from the east and the Attila the Hun, which is again way after the time of Julius Caesar. Certainly, certainly, all the interesting stuff for a story is happening way after that. That's what Julius Caesar did is he made things boring. That's hilarious. And then August, he kind of failed. Things got interesting again. Then Augustus came, and he made things really boring. Yes, very, very sedate during Augustus Caesar's time. Yeah. Yes, and, and then, then after that, and then shit got crazy. Yeah, and then oh yeah, then then after that, it's yeah, office Tiberius, politics. It's murderous office politics, but it's all murderous office politics. Yeah, it was Tiberius, and then it was Caligula, and then it was Claudius for a while, and yeah. then Nero. Of but course. it's just yeah, murder, Romans trying to murder each other. You right. don't have the barbarians coming down. It's no, it's, it's, all, very, it's all office politics. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you all, it's very very Chicago. Yeah, you don't have <laughs> huge chunks of the empire saying. Yeah, you know what? We're just going to separate. And yeah, if you're busy with the Germans now, if you want to try to come with us, yeah, you know, you're you're welcome to try. But yeah, the Germans will invade Rome. (laughs) You know, it's these are the interesting times. Okay, uh, but I want to get back to uh, Scientology, please, because yeah, there's like this whole history of like all this. 
these mystics through like the 19th century, the 20th century. And, you know, it's, there's like talk about how like, uh, uh, the guy who started Scientology, um, L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, L. Ron Hubbard, like studied like with various crazy mystics and stuff like that, going back to the golden dawn in England and stuff like that. All these people are tied together and, uh, Alistair Crowley there. He's tied into all yes. this too. Yes. So you have all these things. Um, Al- and I would t- wanted to tell a story about Scientology where it starts off with Alistair Crowley getting his revelation which he says came from his wife, who was visited by an Egyptian god, and then told him this Book of the Dead thing or something like that. And I suddenly realized, and then he divorced her years later. She, and I suddenly realized, wait a minute, what he's saying is that he doesn't have superpowers. He's saying his wife had superpowers. What is the story of his wife? Oh, that's fun. Yeah, and then just saying, <laughs> saying okay, she's got superpowers. What she's doing in the 1950s. I'm going to tell that story and tie it into L. Ron Hubbard and the Scientology Now, movement. wasn't Crowley around the same time as Conan Doyle? Uh, he was alive like during World War II and stuff like that in 1910. Oh, so, okay, well, so he was, 1910. Yeah, so, yeah, so he's much so, younger. He was much younger. Okay, because I know uh, it's funny. Penn Jillette was just on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast and talking about the friendship of Harry Houdini and Conan Doyle. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, Conan Doyle was such a believer that he basically was like, according to Gillette, who I trust as a magician historian. He was. He definitely was. You know, that, that you know, uh, he would go to Houdini and be like, listen, I know, you know, I know these tricks are fake, but I know you actually have real powers. And I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, Houdini would just be like, ah. No, man, it's a trick. It's it's all a trick. You got to stop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and unfortunately, no, it didn't happen. So, and I know uh, when when uh, Houdini's uh, w- mother passed away, and it was a real big blow to him and everything, and it really depressed the hell out of him. That yeah, unfortunately, Conan Doyle was one of those guys that's like, hey, we found a se- we found a seance person that can really uh, help you f- talk to your mother, and it's like, no, no, it's it's not real. Oh well. <laughs> I, I direct people to the uh, Gilbert Gottfried Pendulette conversation to hear a much more funnier version of that, but at least you can appreciate it for our purposes. Well, I will say let's wrap up because, okay. I, but because more is coming in the conversation with Gene, uh, more comic centric. But I, but you got a flavor for it. And no, he's got he's got really uh, an, an interesting story that he's uh, going to be talking about at his panel at C two E two. The panel is on Friday at twelve thirty. And as you get closer to uh, the convention, you, um, I'm sure I'll be talking about what room it's going to be in and all. But uh, I will be talking to Gene. We will present that panel for those of you who aren't coming to Chicago uh, on a later word balloon. So you'll get more details there as well. But uh, check it out. Uh, Gene has uh, let me behind the curtain. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's a fun story that uh, that uh, gives Gene an opportunity to uh, delve into his past. And we, we will get into yeah. that a bit on the panel and everything. And uh, I think it's a it's a it's a fun, uh, interesting uh, story. And John would tell you more, but as we've discussed extensively during this session, we don't believe in spoilers. No, no, we do not believe in spo- spoilers. So, uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming up, and we're about to enjoy a lovely dinner downtown. And uh, more word balloon coming up in April. So stick around for that. All brought to you by InStock Trades and InStockTrades.com. Don't forget, great deals are happening right now as we speak. I mentioned some Gene Ha books earlier. Go to the website, InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. You will find great deals, great prices that you can't beat. And uh, don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping. This is a good uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana business that continues to expand. They just opened up... Um, 
a new warehouse in I oh god I want to say it's Memphis it's either Memphis or Nashville I'm pretty sure Tennessee huh. but they're no they're ever expanding so no they're doing great and uh, they've been a proud sponsor of Word Balloon for years in stock trades. Dot com. Yeah, I am going to have copies of Top 10 at C2E2 because of John and in stock trades. <laughs> I like it. That's fantastic. The uh, you know Follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter, should you uh, want to, at Gene Ha on, uh, on Twitter. I'm at John Word Balloon. Yeah, and of uh, everything else you can see, uh, I will be announcing stuff on GeneHa.com. There you go. So. Outstanding. So, yes, more details when uh, the day of the panel, I'm sure. Yes. You know, Gene will and be doing a big media blitz as well for this uh, new project. So that's excellent. Looking forward to it, Gene. Just a few scant days away. God, less than three weeks away, we'll be having that panel. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's all good. No, no, no. Kid yourself. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a good time. And I hope to uh, see you at C2E2 as well. So uh, next word balloon, back to uh, the usual nonsense. Uh, we'll have more fun and conversation. But we had a good time today with Gene. Thank you very much for coming up. And uh a pleasure as always, my man. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. It's always good hanging out. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015. Weird show, huh? Well, you got to hear it. There's more. <laughs> Back to the normal stuff next week, I promise. <laughs>